air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is Cinematic Sound. To Cinematic Sound Radio. Today's program is a conversation with composer Miguel de Oliveira. Throughout his medical school years at the University of Coimbra, Miguel started playing in several ensembles ranging from orchestra to ethnic to jazz to folk. The instruments played varied almost as much as the ensembles, keyboards, guitar, bass guitar, cavaquinho, and soprano sax. After graduation and the odd job as a cartoonist and scuba diver instructor in Lisbon, Miguel decided to resurface in London. A quick stop in New York allowed him to get acquainted with a country band with whom he played briefly in Manhattan. He was then invited to join and tour the U.S. by an ethnic fusion band. Back in London, Miguel started to study audio production and orchestration by himself, and a few months later, indie rock band Lapland invited him to join their ensemble playing keyboards and trumpet, and with whom he toured the UK for two years, recorded and produced two EPs and an album. One day, a student from the London Film School asked him to score his graduation film, and there was no turning back from there. By the end of 2001, he stopped performing and started writing music for film and TV, having scored more than 50 projects from TV commercials to feature films. In May of 2004, he was asked to start writing about film music and music production technology for Showreel Magazine, where he's now audio editor. In February 2019, for Cinematic Sound Radio, Jason Drury talked to Miguel de Oliveira via Skype at his home in London, England, about his film and TV scoring career, how he got into the industry, and discussed his various scoring assignments. During the show, you'll also hear music composed by de Oliveira, and much more. And now, here's Jason Drury. Miguel Oliveira, how did your interest in music start? Uh, it would have been at an early age. I mean, <laughs> I think I've always wanted to be a nuisance, and I realized that if you learn a musical instrument, you're much better equipped for the task ahead, so I ended up playing in bands probably from the age of 12, mostly rock bands in school. And it stayed like that. I mean, it, the design never got really any further until probably after I graduated from medical school. And I thought, well, I don't think it's too late to give it one serious try. So I packed my bags and left for New York. I mean, I'm still amazed at my decision because there were no promising signs whatsoever that this was going to turn out well. So I went to New York uh, this would have been something around 96, uh, and I didn't know anyone, so I went to live in Harlem at the YMCA, trying to find where could I start to go to auditions to bands. I think I was looking at the Village Voice or, or other publications. And then by some strange coincidence, I ended up moving to Brooklyn, and I went to live in the house of this girl, this singer from a country band. I mean, her dad was one of Count Basie's saxophonists. So she had a massive house in Brooklyn and she let me stay in one of the rooms. And one day she heard me play a cavaquinho, which I had taken with me. Cavaquinho is the grandfather of the ukulele. 
but it makes a hell of a racket because it's metal strings, not cut strings, or nylon strings. So she was absolutely amazed with the sound. And she said, well, do you want to come and do you want to play with us tonight? So that was my only ever gig in New York. I tried to go to audition to a few bands. I got into one which was about to do a tour of the States and Canada. And they said, well, is your green card and all your papers in order? And I said, what's a green card? So it was the end of that story, back to Portugal. And then a couple of months later, I I decided to try my luck in London. Again, not knowing anyone here, but turned out okay. You teach yourself how to play all the musical instruments in your collection. How long did it take you to learn how to play them? I mean, it depends. I mean, even with, with orchestration and with production, and I take the same approach with instruments, I think my aim was never to truly learn any of these things because time was against me. When I decided to to do all these, I was 29. So I always thought, well, best to find where the boundaries are and then anything within that is always on the menu. I don't mind being wrong. I think it's better than, than sort of being boring. So I always try to get up to speed as quick as I can and as soon as whatever I'm learning or whatever instrument I've just picked up manages to park a new idea or to become useful, I use it straight away. I don't wait until I can play a scale or I can or I can have any degree of virtuosity. I've got probably in my studio about 30 instruments and I, I play all of them to a certain degree. I, I use the word play in, in the very wrong sense. I mean, but I think my ineptitude on, on any of these instruments brings a certain exoticism to the work that I then deliver. I mean, uh, on Merlin, which was a BBC One drama series uh, a couple of years back, I was asked to score a couple of episodes. And on episode eight, which was my first, there was this druid kid, really strange character. And I thought, well, this, I can't do this with samples. I, it needs something a bit more grit and life. So I picked up a viola for the first time and played a, a couple of lines. Obviously, I had to tweak them electronically afterwards. But I mean, they all loved it. And, and they thought I had used some sort of strange and obscure Celtic fiddle And, well, was I to tell them otherwise? Of course it was. What made you turn to writing music for film and TV? Uh, uh, My love of extreme sports. Now, I think it was age, because, I mean, when I left Portugal, I wanted to play in the band. Uh, When I then came to England, I I ended up joining a band called Lapland, who was signed to V2, which was part of Virgin. And I ended up playing keyboards and trumpet with them with various degrees of inadequacy but they were all slightly older than me and I then tried to look ahead of the curve and I thought this wasn't going to be pretty I mean unless you you have a few musical hits it's not going to work out so I thought well where else in the sort of music landscape is or where in the music landscape is age not an issue and in my mind I thought well directors aren't really going to be bothered if you're seven or seventy so I clearly remember one day I, I told the band I was quitting and I thought, well, I need to start somewhere. And I didn't know anyone. So it was really hard to begin with. But at some point, I remember someone told me that there's a library in near Victoria Station that had a fantastic section on music books. And it was truly amazing. I mean, you, you could find anything in there. So that became my second home. I went there frequently to try and learn as much as possible and eventually got money to buy a couple of scores. Again, by gut instinct, I went, I think, with Sacré du Pantam Stravinsky and and, uh, Debussy's La Mer, and I studied them as much as I could. Again, not knowing, because I never studied music, there were things that, to me, 
looked really quite bizarre. I still remember I bought Sacré du Pantin at Foyle's bookshop in Charing Cross Road. And I remember going up to the counter and asking if I could buy it at a discount because I thought the score had some misprint bits and it was just the, the tremble and the indications on the notes. I'd never seen stuff like that before. So I, I, I thought, well, this, this must be a cheaper version. Yeah, it, I, I had no idea. So bit by bit, I started to get a clear map of what would lie ahead. And with that, how did it take you to learn audio production? I mean, again, with that, it's hard to know when... I can't say how long would it take me because I'm still learning. I think I'd stop trying to make mistakes the day I quit this job. I think I no longer make serious mistakes. That probably took me, I don't know, maybe two, three years. I remember at, at the beginning, I mean, there was one track that was one of my favorites when I started writing. And I, I'm must try and find it because it must be in a CD in this house somewhere. But um, it had a really powerful double bass riff throughout. And I remember at the time, I thought, well, when I see a band on stage, they always plonk the double bass or the bass player to the left or to the right. So when I mixed it, I panned the bass hard left. And it, it was so disconcerting. I mean, when you listen to it on headphones, your, your neck would start to twitch. It was really bizarre. So now I, I know the basic. I wouldn't make mistakes like that, but I'm, I'm always learning. And from this self-training, how did you get your first assignment? I probably dabbled with writing for bits that I would tape on VHS probably for about a year. And then I thought, well, I have to try and do the real thing. Otherwise, I'll never move out of these. I discovered that there was a, a film school in London. It was in Covent Garden, the London Film School. And I went there trying to see if I could meet any directors. Someone said, well, why don't you put an ad on the board? So they had a, a little notice board on the stairwell. And I, I remember I put up a, a little paper saying, are you desperate for film score? I've got legitimate pirate software. Give me a ring. I'll do a good job. And eventually this Egyptian director, a guy called, I think it was Esham Askar, he got in touch, showed me his graduation film. I quickly realized he knew even less about film than me, which was a bit of a relief because in your first job, you're a bit nervous. So I took control of the spotting, the style, etc. And uh, I wrote, I think it was three long cues. I then found this Brazilian busker in, on the tube. I hired him to play violin. And that was my first score. I mean, I, the director was so delighted. He, he gave me 20 pounds, even though we never agreed that that was going to be any fee for the score. And then I remember going to the graduation screening. He didn't turn up because the film was absolutely atrocious. But I, I remember hearing some really good comments about the music and uh, some pretty hilarious ones about the film. But th that one didn't lead anywhere. But uh, my second film that paid for that one was along the same lines. I think it was a meal at Burger King. But this guy was starting to cut some bits for kind of a 10th-rate production company in town. A few weeks later, he rings me and he says, I need some title music for Golf International, for Sky Sports. Do you want to have a go? So I tried the best with the limited equipment I had to try and put something together that was as sort of edgy and well-produced. And I got the gig. It was my first TV ever. So, yeah, it went on from there. Yes, I doubt that John Williams has worked for Steven Spielberg for me at Burger King. <laughs> well, we'll have to start somewhere. I still have that £20 note, believe it or not. Did you ever hear from that director again? That one isn't even on IMDb. I mean, I think the guy, he disappeared shortly. I mean, I, I never saw him again. He did, like I said, he didn't even turn up for the graduation screening. But uh, no, Untitled was my third film. It was a short film. And that one led on to a lot of stuff. I mean, because that, that one went to festivals and 
that got me three or four jobs that then led on to maybe five or six. And those five or six, I can probably trace 80% of what I've done up to today from that third film. That was Spitfire from the 2010 documentary The Battle of Britain, music composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolivera. I'm Jason Drury. And Miguel, your work at the moment mainly consists of scoring documentaries. How do you choose which documentaries to score? I'm lucky enough to turn down about a series every two weeks, but I, I mean, I in theory, I pick the documentaries that I watch anyway. doesn't always work like that. But mostly, I think I try and go for projects 
that have people that inspire me, that always my aim to work with people that make it worthwhile. And I mean, so far, I've always been lucky that I've always worked with people that respect me, which is a great bonus. I know it's not always going to be like that. There have been projects that things have been less than pleasant. I mean, it, it could be for a variety of reasons. I mean, you usually want to have a more hands-on approach and quite a few times you deliver a few tracks at the start of a project, then they disappear for months on end. On a couple of projects I've worked, they disappear for more than a year. And then they ring you and say, well, the dub is in three days. Can you just stuck in two or three cues? And I mean, it's still all your music, but it's not really your score. So that, that can be a bit frustrating. Again, I've had situations where they send me a, a psychotic shopping list of super detailed things they want like I want a drone for 20 seconds then a crescendo from G to to B flat for four bars and then all reserved with a piano bang and an harmonic on A flat and I mean it's like being given a painting by numbers picture of a donkey and then you try and send back one that you've done with maybe some wings so that that can be annoying. Can you remember any examples of these last minute problems? Oh yeah I mean I've, I've had situations that I'd rather sometimes not name the projects but I, I remember at least one a few years ago while I went to the dub in, in Soho and uh, I had to take my laptop and I had the laptop plugged to the desk and I was writing some stuff as the guy was dubbing and every now and then I'd feed stuff through. It was that last minute kind of thing. So it's, again, it's not a very pleasant experience, even though the challenge can be interesting. But you think no one's going to know it happened like this. And you, at the end of the day, you are judged by whatever music is there. So. And with that, did you have any unusual requests from directors? Yes. I mean, I've, I've had situations... Well, it's sometimes I prefer them when they try to be... I prefer those kinds of things to, to them being too specific. I've had directors ask for, oh, can the music be a bit more green here and then maybe go into more purple? And, and you don't even ask what are you trying to say because if they've gone with colours... That's really their thing. So you try and interpret almost from a, a psychiatric point of view. You, you try and interpret what they want to do. And, and eventually, I mean, you send them some stuff. You try and, and second guess what exactly do they mean with those colors by a couple of trial and error. I mean, it has worked amazingly or astonishingly well so far when I get those kinds of things. Again, when sometimes they're, they're too specific, they may say, oh, I really want a bassoon here. And you, you you write something for a bassoon and you say, well, what's this? It's a bassoon. No, it's not. And you you can't then begin an argument. So you say, okay, I'll find another kind of bassoon, put a flute, and that's it. That's what I wanted. Now let's talk about some of the documentaries you have worked on. And I would like to start with the one which I first heard your music. I think I heard it on Eric Wood's show, the 2017 documentary about Diana, Princess of Wales, Diana her mother, her life and legacy. Tell us about your memories of working on that project. Well, for some bizarre reason, I get asked a disproportionate amount of times to write music for, for TV shows about the royal family. I still have no idea why. But I, I mean, on that one, it came from a director who, with whom I've been working since 2009. We, we did Battle of Britain back then and everything well, went really well. So I've been working with him since that documentary. And I was really excited with the Diana documentary because it was a big project. It was HBO. I, I was going to have a chance to record the score live with an orchestra. But then two weeks before he went out, they suddenly got this massive treasure trove of footage from when Diana 
was a teenager and, and a little girl and everything got restructured. I mean, even the tone of the documentary changed. So score went out the window, the chance to record, and I had to pretty much start again. And I knew if, if I was going to have to do something quick, I'd have to make it piano-centric. So that's why it's, score is mostly piano. And uh, I had to write, orchestrate and perform and mix everything myself. In the end, I was quite pleased with the score, even though to add to chaos, I think Murphy's Law decided it was time to add some fun to the whole thing. And I was moving house at that time before, as I boxed up the, everything in the studio, I put my dongles with the licenses in a very safe place. So two days later, after moving, when I unpacked everything, they were in such a safe place, I could no longer remember what it was. So... On top of everything, so nothing worked. I mean, the software didn't work. The samples didn't work. I had to start buying licenses again and, and writing to all these companies to try and, and get permission again. So that, that had added to the fun of the project. But at, at the end of the day, I was really pleased with, with how it turned out.
That was music from Diana, Our Mother, Her Life and Legacy, the 2017 documentary, music composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolivera. My name is Jason Drury. Now, Miguel, you also scored two of Joanna Lumley's travelogue series, her Trans-Siberian Adventure in 2015 and her trip to Japan in 2016. Tell us about scoring both of those series. Again, pure coincidence. I don't specifically go after them, but I mean, those two were good fun, even though they were very different, uh, the Trans-Siberian and, and Pan one, because they are different directors. I mean, the Japan one even had, on one episode, half was directed by one guy and another half by another guy. But I remember on both of them, I, I, I didn't want geography or local culture to dictate the way the score was going to sound, so I had to sell that idea to the directors. And I mean, much as I like the challenge of doing that, I didn't think we had time to do it, nor did I think it was that kind of documentary. I mean, it wasn't very objective, as everything was heavily filtered through the eyes of a famous British actress, so the language ended up being more Western, but quite peppered with Japanese instrumentation, or in the other case, Russian and, and Chinese. Yeah, so that was pretty much the, the, the approach.
Thank you.
That was a selection of music from Joanna Lumley's Trans-Siberian Adventure, composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolavira. Now, Miguel, you regularly collaborate with documentary maker Louis Ferru, and one of the most recent series you worked on was the harrowing documentary series Altered States, where Ferru explores the unusual ways that America deals with love, birth and death. Yes, the altered states were three episodes. So one was pretty hilarious, the polyamorous relationships. Uh, the adoption was a bit trickier to do, and especially difficult was the choosing that uh, film because you had to make it palatable, but you had very little room for maneuver. You pulled it too much towards something a bit lighter, and the whole thing broke because it just the, the images and the story couldn't take it. So that that one was a, a tough challenge.
That was the suite of music for Miguel Dolivera's score to the 2018 Louis Theroux documentary series Altered States. And Louis, you also scored the recent series of Michael Palin's trip to North Korea. That one, that one was particularly good fun to write for. And again, uh, it, it was that the approach was kind of similar to the Joanna Lumley. Fun enough, it was directed by 
one of the, the guys that did the Japan travelogue. And he floated the idea of having North Korean music. I said, again, it is going to be slight. Everything's going to be slightly staged to, again, a very famous, lovely actor from Sheffield. So I think we can afford to go completely off the, the spectrum of what's expected. And for a series of reasons, I ended up suggesting that the eight is all done with sort of real temperamental cheap synths. They were all trying to punch above their weight and, and trying to sound big and trying to sound like an officer when in reality they were just flimsy machines hanging by strings. And he's a lovely guy as well. I mean, I had the chance to meet him on this thing a couple of times. I mean, it was great to hear from him that how much he loved the music. And also, I mean, because I've started doing stand-up gigs and I had, we had the chance to have a long chat about stand-up and he was giving me some tips, which, I mean, I, I couldn't ask a better person to give you some some advice on on uh, on the stand up
Daffo's music from the 2018 Channel 5 documentary series Michael Perlin in North Korea, composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolavira. And so then, Miguel, which uh, documentary series has given you the most pleasure to work on? Battle of Britain. That was probably one of the, the early highlights for me. And then the two that I did uh, in last year, I mean, Michael Palin in North Korea and the Altered States series with Louis Theroux, they were all really great to work on. There's also these two directors, Sarah and Blue, that I love working with. I mean, I've been doing all their stuff since we did Bomb Squad for BBC One. It was a two-hour documentary in 2011. And then sometimes it's, it's the stuff that you hear after that the show has been broadcast. I mean, when BBC were preparing to record the second series of Great Ormond Street Hospital, the director told me that he went to the hospital and to speak with the doctors that were going to feature on the second series. And he asked them, what do they think of the first series? Because he was hoping for some high praise and quite a lot of enthusiasm. And he told me all he got was, oh, we, we love the music. The music was fantastic. So that for me still stands as, as one of my highlights. What is it like to score reality TV? My only experience with reality TV would be Secret Helpers, First Dates Hotel, and then obviously First Dates. But uh, I mean, it's not really scored per se, even though Secret Helpers had quite a few sequences that were written to picture. For First Dates and First Dates Hotel, apart from the pre-titles, which are scored to picture, I n- I've never done a single scene where I can say it's scored, usually at the beginning of each season or each series, I'd write a jukebox of tracks that I feel best illustrate the drama that is likely to come up. I mean, uh, from after, I think, series four, and I think we're now on series 10, I've been given enormous freedom. They say, well, you've been on this for more than any of us, so you go and do your thing. They, they still sort of prove or not the tracks that I write, but I, I never get sent any uh, direction. I mean, I, I'm I'm the only person who's still on first dates from series one. Everyone else has changed. There's not a, a single person now. I'm like a veteran that is welcoming the, the new rookies on, on the battlefield. But I mean, first dates has been my most rewarding gig ever for a myriad of reasons. I mean, one... It, I, I still get asked to do sometimes really important and serious documentaries like The Last Minus for BBC One by people who have either worked on first dates or would have seen my work or would have heard my work, sorry, and then made that leap into thinking, yeah, this guy is, is the right person for this documentary. I see a lot of pitches for uh, briefs for pitches for new TV shows that I get sent and other composers that, that where they ask for the music to sound like first dates, to have uh, that kind of vibe. Other composers tell me that they get asked to imitate some of the first day tracks quite frequently. I mean, a lot of people would say that I've created a unique voice for that show with a strong identity. I think I'm the only one who can't really put my finger on and say what it actually is. And then they've also showed some incredible gratitude. I mean, I was only doing my job, but they they really appreciate it on a very different level. At some point, I think it was three years ago, first dates got nominated for a BAFTA and they invited me to the award ceremony. They paid for my ticket, which isn't cheap, sat me at their table. And uh, if that wasn't enough, they said, no, if, if we win, you come on stage with us. And I said, it doesn't make any sense. And they said, no, 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 you've been absolutely instrumental, uh, no pun intended, to the success of the series. So, yeah, we won and I went and I'm so glad I wasn't too drunk yet because I remember most of it. It was an incredible night. 
That was music from the long-running reality series that started in 2013. First Dates, composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolivera. My name is Jason Drury. Now, Miguel, to date in your career, you have worked on five feature films. Which one gave you the most pleasure to work on? Um, I mean, they, they were all very, very different pieces. I mean, there's, there's no one thing in common throughout those five. But, uh, I mean, my highlight would absolutely be the chance to work with Jocelyn Pook on Chaotica. I mean, she was already one of my composer heroes. And when you discover that someone you admire enormously as a composer it turns out to be a really nice person as well and with whom you're going to have a chance to work closely for a few weeks in our home studio and then go out and record a score it was inspiring you know in a very special way would you consider in the future a move from scoring documentaries to feature films yes even even drama or, or any feature format i think is a lot more generous for any composer because it allows you to flex your muscles in a, a different way you've got a, a bigger canvas you have a chance to make themes develop your cues can be longer and and ever in documentaries you have to be a complete chameleon changing styles every now and then throughout sometimes the first 10 minutes of the film and obviously it's hierarchically you're you're under diegetic sound you're under commentary so unlike drama or feature film very rarely in documentary would music take center stage and obliterate all other sounds. So, yeah, I would like a chance to, to go and score other formats. And you had a taste of a different genre when you scored an episode in 2008 of the TV series Merlin. How did that come about? Uh, I was meant to score more, but uh, I, I, I had a, an accident at the time and I could only do, I think, one and a half episodes. The composer for the series, a lovely chap called Rob Blaine, very talented guy, he rung me up and said, do you want to come down, have a look at this series that I'm doing? And if you're interested, I'd love you to be on board and write some stuff with me. So I was sent episode eight to score it top to bottom. That went well. And then as I was starting on more, I had a, an accident and, and couldn't work for a few months. So that, that was the end of my involvement on Merlin. But it, it was an amazing experience. I mean, I, I try not to deviate stylistically much from what Rob was doing, but I, I had to fend for myself because the, by then there was no money to go and do live recording. So again, my collection of instruments came to the rescue and that's when I, I did that thing with the viola.
That was Brave New World from the documentary series Shakespeare and Us, composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolivera. I'm Jason Drury. Now, Miguel, which composers have influenced your work? Again, you'd be a, a massive list. First, the composers that you quickly realize you should not try and imitate, like John Williams or Goldsmith or John Powell, to the ones that you fool yourself into thinking you can imitate, like Bernard Herrmann or Morricone or Thomas Newman. I mean, they're composers I listen to a lot. Funny enough, two composers that are a massive influence on my work are Daniel Pemberton and Adrian Johnson who I'm very lucky to be able to call friends, or by their name when I can be bothered, but uh, they've given me input quite frequently on stuff that I do and, and sometimes ask for my opinion as well, which is great. And I can see on a lot of my scores ideas that would have formed because I would have listened to, to their music quite a lot. When you compose, do you prefer to score orchestrally, electronically? Or a mix of both? It depends completely on the project. I mean, I love doing those three options, either completely orchestral or electronic. But I think if the project calls for it and if there's the time and the money, it's usually more fun and creative to, to blend real orchestra or real ensemble with, with electronics. How much does technology help you in your composing? Well, if I'm brutally honest, were it not for technology providing the, the vehicle for my journey, I would have gone back to my medical career pretty sharpish. So when you read that technology saves lives, this is what they mean. It kept me away from uh, from going back to medical job. My choice of weapon there is, is Cubase and, and Ableton Live, but I mean anything from being able to edit audio with, with the precision that we are allowed to now and, and, and even the tuning. I mean, because again, that allows me to play a lot of instruments from trumpet to clarinet to any stringed instrument that, that may require a bit of, a bit of, I wouldn't even say auto tuning because I don't do auto tuning. I, I tune the notes manually. Were it not for technology, it would have made things really hard. I mean, I, I could manage with a four track and that's how I started, but I don't think I'd be doing Louis Theroux's altered states on a four track.
That was a piece of music called Soaring, composed by my guest today, Miguel Dolivera. I'm Jason Drury. Now, Miguel, away from scoring and composing music, what type of music do you like to listen to? Film music or any scores would be maybe one or two percent of what I listen to. I mean, I went through periods of my life, especially at university, where I I listened to kind of only one genre exclusively. So that would be the, the hip hop years, the jazz years, the bossa nova years. But I, I I listen to pretty much everything. I mean, from minimalist to avant-garde, atonal. I mean, I, I draw the line at that 12-tone nonsense. I think that's pretty much what someone had in mind when they said that avant-garde is the last refuge of the untalented. And I think for me, it's that, that 12-tone thing. But I, other than that, I listen to pretty much everything. I mean, from heavy metal to opera, yeah. As you're a fan of listening to film music, which film composers do you like listening to? And what are your favourite film and TV scores? Uh, I mean, it's tricky. You've asked me what my favourite composers were. And again, a lot of things from John Williams to Goldsmith to Powell, Thomas Newman. I mean, recently I, I came across a couple of John Williams sketches for Jurassic Park. So I hadn't written five-step sketches for Jurassic Park and Superman. And I had a go at transcribing the MIDI. I was absolutely, I mean, I was a massive fan of the, the melodies anyway, of of his writing, but I was in awe of what those squiggles meant. With most composers, one plus one equals two, but I don't think, with genius like Williams, it's, it's a different kind of beast. I mean, what looks complicated actually is quite clean and simple on his writing and and when you try and understand the simple bits they they keep eluding you so it was admiration my admiration rose on, on to a completely different level but uh, i mean if we're talking about favorite scores or tv i don't know i'll have to think probably of something more recent recent years and uh maybe for film what daniel pemberton did for into the spider-verse was absolutely phenomenal i i love every single bit of it and for tv I remember listening to these non-stop. I loved what um, Cristobal Tapia de Villa did for Utopia. So, I don't know, if I had to quickly pick two, it would be the, those. It's really good. I mean, I had the chance to go and see the recordings. Daniel asked me if I wanted to come down to ask Judith for the recordings, and it, it was it was phenomenal. Now, back to your work. Now, of all the scores you have worked on to date, which, at the moment is the one you are most proud of. The Michael Pelin in North Korea is probably the most me. I mean, the t- teenage years mark you a lot, and my teenage years were, were in the 80s, listening to electro and disco and pop. I had a, a, a DX7, which I fiddled with a lot, and while I was also I, I was writing a lot of computer games on, on my ZX Spectrum. So maybe that score is what I'd hope I'd write had I gotten the gig while I was 18 or something. And and also, I mean, it was great to work with, with the director. It was really a pleasant experience. And and again, having Michael saying how much he loved the music, it made the whole thing really special for me. Uh, and we talked about earlier on about first dates. And I suppose first dates, is, even though not a score, is almost kind of in this category because I feel the tracks are quite personal at times uh, again they stem almost from my years at university well almost every night i'd go out with a guitar in hand serenading girls at the window so there's a lot of that 
permeates through my music on first date. So they, both of those have a special meaning for me. I wouldn't say they'd be the ones I'm most proud of, but they're the ones that mean more. What are you working on at this moment? Only four TV series. So I'm doing two really great films with Louis Theroux again. One about consent in top American universities and, and, and rape. And one about postpartum psychosis here in the UK. I'm doing a one-off for BBC about a British girl went off to Syria to fight with the Kurds and died. I'm doing the third series of The Met for BBC One. And I'm about to start another series about Japan and probably write new music for First Dates Hotel. And finally, what do you see Miguel Dolivera doing in the realm of film and TV scoring in the near future? Well, I, I would love to start writing more for, for feature formats, for drama or feature films, feature documentaries. Mostly, my real aim is to work with people that inspire me. I mean, it, If it's drama and feature films, great. I don't mind if it's a documentary. It could be a documentary about an egg. It could be it could be a whole series of documentaries about an egg. If that means working with someone with whom I'm going to have super interesting discussions about what music can bring to their project, someone who's going to help me discover new music, discover new ways of writing someone, that gets me onto the next level. Every now and then I have a chance to work with people like this and they make all the difference. So the format is secondary to the talent involved in the project. And while we await that documentary about an egg with great anticipation, Miguel Oliveira, many thanks for joining us today. I do hope you enjoyed this programme about the life and music of Miguel Oliveira. I leave you today with a final piece of his wonderful music, entitled Sun. Again, my thanks to Miguel Oliveira for joining us today and a thank you, of course, to Eric Woods for introducing the show. So until we meet again, from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Cinematic Sound Radio. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. Don't forget to check us out at cinematicsound.net on the web, Sound Radio on Twitter, and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate and review the show. It really helps get the show noticed. And don't forget to tell all your friends about the program as well. We really appreciate the support. And please check out our affiliate at Movie Scores and More Radio at moviescoreradio.com.